0: We return this morning to the book of Titus, where we have been for about six or eight weeks. Uh, We took last week off from it. Some of you weren't there for our outdoor services, where we walked through the first chapter in this book. And so I'll give you kind of a big overview to refresh some of you, and as a first time for others of you, just to kind of tell you where we are in things right now. There's a big picture story going on, a story behind this letter. The story is that there was once a real man named Titus, and he was an apprentice of the apostle Paul. They traveled together once on a missionary journey that landed them on a Greek island called Crete, where there may have already been a few baby churches, and they probably planted a few more. And by the time Paul had to leave, there were 10 or 20 churches planted there, but they were baby churches. They weren't brought up to maturity. And so Paul left Titus there, and he said, Titus, your job is to strengthen these churches up to maturity, and then you're gonna leave too. You're gonna leave them there on their own. Sometime later, Paul wrote this letter to Titus to give him instruction in that task of strengthening the churches. And so we find here in this letter a formula for building a healthy church, a formula for strengthening the church of God. And the formula looks like this. Healthy leadership plus healthy Christians equals healthy church. The healthy leadership part we see in chapter one, which is dedicated to Titus's first job, installing the right men as pastors and elders in the church. You gotta get good leaders there. They gotta be trustworthy men, worthy of the office. That's part one. Then chapters two and three shift gears into the lifestyle that every Christian is to live. Titus' other job is to teach all of the Christians there in Crete how to live the Christian life. By the time he leaves, his goal is to have good pastors in every church and strong, healthy Christians in every church, because a church that has that, that's a church that's ready to face Satan's attacks. That's a church that can stand on its own without apostles there helping to guide them, but the pastors and elders of the church are enough to lead them. That's a church that's ready for healthy growth, uh, like the house that is built on the rock, right? The, the rains will fall, the winds will blow, the waves will beat against the house, but the house doesn't fall because it's built on God's word. That formula is healthy leadership plus healthy Christians equals healthy church. That's the message of the whole book of Titus. We are particularly interested in that because we've got the last 40 years of our history well documented, we're a 60 year old church. Last 40 years are really well documented and we know that we've had four successive decades of great growth and then great decline and then great growth and then great decline again. And we're a church that's crying out for a healthier pattern. We're a church that's crying out to God for healthy growth. Saying God, how can we build growth here like we have in the past But this time, how can it be healthy growth? How can it be growth that lasts through the shifting of the sands and through the storms that come in a church's life? That's why we're looking to the book of Titus to try to build a healthier church. So we're looking there. Today, we're going to look specifically at the role that young people play in building a healthy church. And there are a few ways that I think this can particularly help us. Some of you are young and you are wondering, what does the Christian life look like for me? A young mom could be saying, how can I follow Jesus just most absolutely as a young mom? A young dad or a young single man might be saying, okay, what's most important for me to focus on now in my young years to live out the gospel? If that's you, I think this message might just speak right to you. Others of you are wondering, okay, the Lord's bringing more and more young people in the door. He seems to be bringing them in one by one and two by two. We thank God for that. He's been doing that over the last couple of years we're asking the question, okay, how can we serve them well, right? Like, what can we do for them? Because we don't just want to fill up the building with young people and then not do anything, right? We want to disciple them. We want to teach them how to follow Jesus. How can we do that well? If you're one of the people wondering that, I think this text will give you a good vision for the sort of young people we are looking to raise up here, what it is that we want to teach them, what it, is, what it looks like for them to be following Jesus' ways. And then thirdly... Some of you are getting the itch to mentor as we talk about one-on-one discipleship and mentoring. Some of you have even communicated to me, like, I I think the Lord wants me to do that, but I just got two problems. I have no idea what to do, and I have no idea who to do this with, right? Like, you want to do it, but you need some direction, some guidance in how to do it. This text, I think, will help in one particular way. It'll give you a vision for if the Lord gives you one young person to spend time one-on-one with, with your Bible open to teach them, what is it that you're trying to turn them into? Like, what's the goal here for this person's life? When a coach has a vision for what he wants the athlete to become, when he says, okay, I want this runner's mile time to be under five minutes. Now he's got an idea of what he wants. He's got a goal, so now he has has the ability to start planning out, okay, we need to do this to get there, and that to get there, and that to get there, but if you don't have a goal, it's really tough to know how to coach the athlete. Same is true in mentoring. Once you have a goal for where you want to bring them, then you can start thinking of the sort of things that you need to do to get there. So that's three things I think just this particular text can really help us. Uh, The plan for the next few weeks is we'll spend a few weeks in this first paragraph of chapter two talking about what the Christian life looks like for the young, for the older, and for employees as well. A few weeks ago we looked at what it looks like for teachers uh, then we'll spend the rest of the year looking at chapter 3 until we get to Christmas time when we'll do a few Christmas messages. And then we've got something new coming for you in the new year as well. Let's look at our Bibles here. We're going to read all of chapter 2 today. But the sermon is only on verses 2 through 6. And it's particularly only on the words to the young in verses 2 through 6. In two weeks, Paul plans to be right here and preach on the same verses, the content to the older members. We're focusing just on the young this week. Let's read together chapter 2. Then we'll read verses 2 and 6, today's material again. The Lord says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who were zealous for good works." declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We look back at verses 2 through 6, today's text, which says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and sound in the faith in love and in steadfastness. What we have in these words is a vision for the, what we want to train our young people to be at Calvary Baptist Church. If you're young here and you want to know, what does this church want to turn me into? We have a, a vision for it, at least in part here. A picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus in those years of young marriage, in those years of young parenthood. And therefore a charge to all of us to be a part of training them in walking this way. Big picture, what's going on in this paragraph is, if you just want to put it as simply as we can, Jesus changes those that he saves. We are a people that are gathered here who trust Jesus to save us, right? We trust in the message of the gospel, that very simple message that Jesus' death and resurrection alone is enough to secure forgiveness for our sins and make us right before God. We are a people who call everyone to turn from sin and trust in Jesus But that's not the end of the Christian life, that is only the beginning of the Christian life. Coming to him in faith is how it begins. Then he starts to change you. And that is the main message of the second paragraph in this chapter. Uh, You can actually see the logic work out here, big picture in the chapter. Uh, If your Bible has paragraphs, you might have verses one through 10 as one paragraph. In our worship guide, we use a translation that has verses one through 10 as one paragraph. Then verse 11 starts with the word for, and verses 11 through 14 mark the second paragraph. So it's the first paragraph because of the second paragraph, right? First paragraph has all the instructions. Older men live like this, younger men live like this, older women live like this, on and on, right? All the instructions for what life should look like, then the word for, and then the message of the gospel. So big picture here, Why are we living like this? Why does this instruction matter so much? Because of the message of the second paragraph that Jesus has saved us and also continues to change us. You can see that in verses 11 and 12. He has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, right? He saves us and trains us in how to live right. And in verse 14, he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possessions who are zealous for good works. So we come to Jesus. We trust him for salvation. I call all of you, trust him for salvation. And as you do, you will find there a savior who changes you, who makes you new. What does that life look like? Well, it looks like the things that are outlined in the first paragraph for younger men, older women, older men, that sort of thing. This is why, uh, I should acknowledge the elephant in the room here today, this is why the content of what we're going through today is so offensive. If you were paying attention, you probably noticed that the word of God being proclaimed is about to call wives to submit to their husbands and call young men to live in self-control, we're gonna say to young men, you can't do whatever you want with your bodies. There's not much more of an offensive message than that right now in the world around us, right? The spirit of the age rails against that. Those of us that grew up in this world, which is all of us, find it in our hearts to just resist that and not like that. So the big question right now is, why would the Bible say things like that? Why would it compel men of God to proclaim that kind of lifestyle? The reason is that these instructions are the practical outworking of an offensive gospel. It's not just the lifestyle that's offensive to the world around us. It is the message of the gospel itself. If you take yourself under an offensive message, well, the life you live is going to be offensive to people around you as well. Now, in every age, there is a spirit of the age that just flows through the whole thing and there is always something about the spirit of the age that completely just abhors the message of the gospel. This has been different century through century, decade through decade. Right now, the big thing that offends the world around us comes down to one question and that question is, who does my body belong to? This is something the world around us celebrates. You ask just your average person, who's your body belong to? They're likely to say, well, my body belongs to me, right? Nobody owns my body but me, and that is why you can't tell me how to live, that is why you can't tell me who to go to bed with, that is why you can't tell me what to do with the child in my womb, that's why you can't tell me if I'm a man or a woman, because I belong to me, and I determine those things about my body, right? That's the core message of the world around us right now. Now, someone who cherishes that doesn't just believe it, but celebrates above all things that their body belongs to themselves. If they're paying attention, we would have already lost them when I read verse 14 earlier. Let's look again at what verse 14 says. And let me ask the question, when Jesus gives himself on the cross to pay for our sins, what does he gain from that? It says he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. That's what should offend the world around us. We are, as Christians, a people who do not celebrate our bodies belonging to ourselves. We are a people who look at verses like this and find comfort in it, who say, we are the possession of a good and faithful savior. My body doesn't belong to me anymore. And that's good news because I can't raise myself from the dead. Now I belong to somebody who can raise me from the dead when I die. Now I belong to somebody who can earn forgiveness for my sins and already had. So while the world around us celebrates belonging to themselves, their own self-possession or autonomy as they like to call it, we celebrate being the possession of, being the property of Jesus Christ. He redeemed us, which means that he bought us and he owns us. Thus, we are his. And we find that to be good news. We look to an ancient confession that says, my only comfort in life and death is that I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's good news to us. Now, if you're willing to come to Jesus and say that and celebrate that, then these instructions that kind of violate our sense of autonomy no longer offend you because you're like, well, if I belong to him and all of his ways are good and he's going to raise me from the dead one day, then whatever work he is giving me to do, it's good work and I'm ready to do it. You come in ready to listen, ready to receive no matter what it says and that is why we find ourselves in a position of living a life that is offensive to the world around us because we believe a gospel that is offensive to the world around us. So Back to the point of today, what does that life look like for young people today? If we believe something that is in stark contrast with what the young people around you believe, what does that life look like? Well, we'll start with the young moms. And we see this in verse 4. The older women are to train the younger women to... Love their husbands and children. That is the most practical way, young moms, that you can follow Jesus is to lavish your husband and your children with love. What we need from you most is not what you're doing in this building. What we need from you most is the love you're giving your husbands and children 24-7. And my prayer all week has been that hearing that would refresh you because I know a lot of young moms who need to hear that what they're already doing is the most important thing they can do to serve the church. There is so much pressure on young moms today to not only keep the house stuff under control, but also to have some really great high-earning job outside of the home and also do some really great stuff in the church and just, you gotta have it all, right, to be a really successful person. And the Lord just says, no, like what you're already doing at home every day is so valuable and precious to me that if you dedicate the next five or 10 years to your life to doing nothing but that, those are years well spent. That means that if you're a young mom right now and you have young kids in the house, these years may be the most impactful years of your life. If you wind up looking back one day on all the work you've done and the impact that it has on various people, you might find these years were the years where you made the greatest impact. That's not because the other stuff doesn't matter. That's because of how vitally important a young mom's work toward her husband and children are. So the main thing he says here is to love her husband and children. That's the main way that she serves the church by strengthening the next generation one day i hope that we have in 20 years i hope that we have some god-fearing 24-year-olds in this church and if we do the math They're four years old right now, and some of you are giving your lives to them to train them in the fear of the Lord. How are we gonna train up that generation? Our kids' ministry is not gonna be enough to do it. We'll help you in that with our kids' ministry. What we need are mothers and fathers, for that matter, who pour their lives into their children and train them in the fear of the Lord. If we wanna see a generation rise up and worship Him, moms, what you do right now makes a huge difference in the church. If we believe that, If we believe that loving her husband and children is the most important thing that a young mom does, that changes how we look at some stuff. That means that a mom who has a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and a five-year-old in the home, and comes to church on Sunday morning exhausted and says, man, I really wish I was serving and and doing something here, but I just feel so guilty that I'm I'm not contributing, I'm not doing anything. Let me just free you up, young mom. If you have to take a few years off of serving and pour yourself into the home, nothing wrong with that, because what you're doing at home is so important. Now, don't pull back from learning. Don't pull back from women's Bible study and from being mentored and your relationships. Let them pour into you. It even says the older women need to train the younger women in this. You need help in this. But if you gotta go a couple years just not serving anywhere in the church, that is fine by us because what you're doing is so important. And as the Lord gives you time, as the years go by, you'll find yourself with more time on your hands, more energy, and more ability to contribute. And so God bless you in that. That means that we've gotta be realistic about our growing kids ministry. Uh, I know some of you serve in the kids ministry and you're thinking, man, I can't wait till there are more young people in here and I don't have to do this so much, right? Realism says, as the Lord brings us more young people, you're gonna have more work to do, not less, because they're gonna come tired, they're gonna come in need of our help, and we've gotta be the ones that rise up and help them. So just admitting that what she is doing at home with her kids is vitally important changes how we look at all sorts of things. I pray that's refreshing to you, Mom, to just see that what you're already doing 24-7 is so important for the church. We also get here a picture of what that looks like, okay? It's nice to have the, the concrete, okay, love husbands and children, okay, but what does that look like day in and day out? In verse five, we get really concrete pictures of what that looks like. The first thing we see is self-control and purity, which as best I can understand seem to be a pair together in a really immoral culture like first century Crete, Self-control and purity both speak to that sexual purity that is required of all Christians and is difficult in those young years. Especially once kids start to come into the home, it's just a tough time for marriage. It's a tough time for intimacy, if we're honest, right? When you got babies in the home keeping you up all night, mom is always tired, dad is usually tired, there's always interruption. It's tough to just preserve the importance of intimacy and marriage in those years. Never mind that you're both sinners and your fatigue is gonna lead to you sitting against each other and that's gonna put a wedge in between you. There can be hardship in those years when it comes to your marital intimacy. You may find yourself unhappy in those years. And what this word is telling you is that in those moments, you can't turn to the guy that liked you in high school that you're still Facebook friends with for intimacy. You can't turn to Fifty Shades of Grey for happiness in those times. We're called to self-control and purity in those years. This is said in a context of first century Crete that is, was every bit as immoral as the world around us today, and perhaps even more so. They had a reputation for being beast-like because they just got what they wanted in those days. And the Lord calls the women of that day, be women of self-control, be women of purity. Love your husband and love your husband alone. That's the first part, self-control and purity. The second picture we get is working at home. And the world is putting a lot of energy right now into making that work that you do at home seem small and seem unimportant, right? To make you feel like you have to do that and something else in order to make a difference. And the fact that Paul is emphasizing it so much here should be enough to free you from those burdens and tell you that what you're doing already is of so much vital importance that if you have to focus on it, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no such thing as being above that work. Because like I said earlier, you may look back on these years and say that they were the most impactful years of your life. That work you're doing, like diapers, laundry, preparing meals, stuff that is not glorious but feels very mundane, oh, it's, it's glorious because it keeps children alive and healthy. And we know God's heart for children because it trains children in the fear of the Lord. And one of the big reasons he brought you and your husband together in the first place was to have godly offspring. He loves it when our children rise up and fear him when we tell the next generation of his ways. And that work you're doing with them is so important. Let's just think of one aspect of this. Now, if you're a young mom, you know, like you have like eight hands right now and you're doing so much, you're working in every room in the house at the same time. You know what it's like, Emily and I are going through it as well, but we're just gonna focus on one thing and that is family dinner. There is so much research out there that correlates having an evening family meal together with like every stat that we want to come true for our children, children who grow up in a home where there's family dinner, where everybody just sits down and eats together. They have a higher self image. They are far less likely to ever consider suicide. Uh, They have much lower alcohol use, much lower drug use. I mean, you could just go on and on down the list of all of the blessings that seem to be correlated one way or another with growing up in a family that just sits down and has dinner every night. Do you see, mom, the impact just of the meals that you're cooking? And that's like a 50th of all of the work that you do in the home. This is lifetime impact you're making on these kids, eternal impact sometimes that you're making on these kids just by cooking up eggs and putting it on the table. These things seem small and mundane to us, but they are great to the Lord. So let's take them up with vigor. There's no such thing as being above work like that. The next picture we get is kind. Your children and your husband, part of loving your children and your husband is being kind to them. Them knowing you as a warm and generous person. That can be tough sometimes, right? Even if you love your husband and love your children, when one of them's kept you up all night, And two others of them are fighting and the other one is complaining because they don't like the food that you put on the table. It's pretty tough to be kind 24-7 in your house toward the people that are around you all the time. But what your children need to look back and remember is not just just parents who disciplined them well when they needed to be disciplined, but parents who were kind-hearted toward them, who were warm and generous toward them even in those moments of just discipline, even in those moments of hard teaching, carried a kind heart toward them. And as I look at this text, I wonder if that right there for many young moms is the one thing that Satan just uses to twist a little guilt in your heart. Because we all know what scary mom looks like, right? We all know those occasions when mom's just at the end of the rope and she, she turns into scary mom. Every mom knows this, you are not the only mom who has moments like that. And if that's you, if you're seeing kind as a command to how we ought to love husbands and children, you're thinking, oh man, well I'm like that six days a week, but man, that other day, oh, that's rough. Remember, this is the life that is lived under the gospel of Jesus. This is the life that is lived in grace. You do not earn your entry into heaven through any of this. You do it as a response to the entry into heaven you've already been given. And what do Christians do when we have wronged each other? We apologize and ask for forgiveness because we know we'll find it in our brothers and sisters. This is one of the biggest habits that Emily and I have had to develop with our own children. There are always going to be moments when you're not kind to your kids if you live with them 24-7. And when scary mom comes out, when scary dad comes out, what you have to do is just go back to them afterwards and say, you can use this text right here if you want to, and just say, son, daughter, the scriptures command me to be kind to you. And I wasn't kind in the way that I just spoke to you. Will you forgive me? If you can do that to a five-year-old, and then a six-year-old, and then a seven-year-old, and an eight-year-old, all the way through, you are teaching them what grace looks like. You are teaching them that the Lord calls kindness from you, but you can't give it. But we live under a gospel where we find forgiveness. That will make an impact in your children, and that will be in itself an act of kindness toward them. The last picture of loving your husband and children that we get is submitting to your husband, which... You've probably figured out by now this is not a place where we try to work around what the text says. We look at what it says and we say, it means what it says. This means exactly what it says, submitting to your husband, giving your husband the responsibility for the final decisions in the home. This, these are words that assume a biblical framework for the family, which many of us don't have. I'll, I'll back up and give you that whole framework. The, the Bible's picture of how God kind of orders the home is a father-husband who gives up everything for his wife and kids, right? His picture of sacrifice for his kids just makes people impulsively say, man, that sounds a lot like Jesus and everything that he gave up for the church, right? Like sacrificially in a Christ-like way, gives up everything for the kids and the wife takes responsibility for everything that goes on in the home. When things aren't right, he says, all right, I'm the one that will take initiative and make this happen. When a conversation needs to happen, he's the one that takes initiative, says, okay, neither one of us want to start this conversation, but I'll do it. When both sides need to apologize, he's the one that says, okay, we both need to apologize. Neither of us are doing it. I'll be the first one, even if that means risking that she won't apologize back to me. He's the one that takes initiative, the one that takes responsibility, the one who gets the family into church and says, says, this is my responsibility, I'll do this. Basically, he is the one who knows that when Jesus comes back, he's not going to go to the house and first ask the children how things went. He's going to go to the dad in the house and say, tell me about what's going on in your house. Tell me about the way that you're leading your home. What's your wife like? What are your children like? Because he's the one that's got the responsibility before God. He takes that responsibility before God seriously, more seriously than his own authority in the home. And then the wife looks at that and says, okay, I have this imperfect man who is trying to lead us, who is not as good at Jesus in doing it. But you know what? Imperfect leadership is better than no leadership. I'll gladly follow this guy who's trying to lead us. That's God's design for the home. And they raise the children together in this way. The children obey and honor the parents. They teach the kids how to do that. This is a biblical framework for home. So within that, as he's talking to young wives, he reminds them, yeah, follow your husband's leadership. Imperfect leadership is better than no leadership in your home. So any leadership he gives you, follow that. Follow that leadership. Take it and cherish it. Now there are often two types of women who are hearing this at the same time, and I I just want you to consider which one you are. Some women are living with, and I mean married women here, some wives are living with an imperfect husband and saying, okay, he's not perfect, but he's given this a shot and I'll try to follow him. Other women are living with husbands who will hold verses like this over their heads, use these verses against their wives in arguments. Use these verses to get their wives to do things they really shouldn't be asking their wives to do. Using these verses to cover for abuse or manipulation or mistreatment. And they're not even trying to give their wives anything like the Christ-like picture of leadership that is in the Bible. Depending on which one of those you are, you need to receive these words differently. If you're one of those women whose husbands are using these kind of words against you, everything I said before is worded toward a different type of household. If your husband is using this to manipulate you, if your husband is using this against you, I wanna ask you, come to me and talk with me about this and let's figure out how to make things right in your home, how to hold your husband to account to give you good and godly leadership. But that's only like a few percentage of us. The rest of us, if your husband's doing everything he can to try to lead you in godliness, just thank God for it. Imperfect leadership is better than no leadership. Thank God for it, embrace it, and follow it. Okay, so that's the concrete picture. Then we have words in verse 5 that say that if we do this, and this might surprise you, the word of God might not be reviled. Now, there are a lot of people who would love to smear everything that I've preached so far, aren't there? A lot of people like that. What he's saying here is that we need to live in a way that those very people see our lives And if they want to smear us, they've got to make something up about us. Because the truth is, hearing this stuff proclaimed and getting offended at it is a very different thing from seeing it lived out in the home. Unbelievers might come into your house and just smell that there is something different in this house. These people love each other and have grace for each other. And man, what's going on? I want to get in on this, right? And if they, if they find out, you know, all the things the Bible says and they get offended by it, okay, but they're going to have to make something up about us because they can't revile the way that we are actually living. When we live this way, it shines like a city on a hill. It even attracts people as they wonder what's going on here. And they can't in good conscience revile us unless they want to make up something about us. So let me encourage you, if you look at this stuff and you're thinking, man, I can tell it's biblical, I wanna live it, but goodness, I don't, I don't want the shame that's gonna come along with walking in the Bible's teaching in this world around us. No, if you can live in it, the word of God cannot be reviled in any good and true way. So live and walk in it. Another way to say this is that there's a reputation, even out in the world, that Christian men make the best husbands and Christian women make the best wives. There are unbelievers who will say things like, well, if you want to find a good husband, just go to church and see if one of those Christian guys will marry you. If you want to find a good wife, go to church and see if one of those Christian women will marry you. Because we've got a reputation for being good husbands, good wives, faithful people. That's good for the gospel. The gospel can't be reviled if we can keep that kind of reputation, despite the offensive nature of what we preach. Okay, young moms, I pray that that is refreshing to you and that it reminds you that what you are already doing is the most important thing that you can do. If there is a weight of legalism on your back, just take this time to shed it off and say, okay, I'll love my husband, I'll love my children, and that is enough for me. I've been praying all week that that would be refreshing to you. At the same time, there may be some women here who are single young women. And you're looking at this advice for young moms, and you're saying, okay, well, what do do I do, right? How does this apply to me? And on one hand, it's probably important to know what the culture was like then. You know, young women would get married at 12 or 13 in the first century. No birth control, so by 15, 16, 17 years old, she's probably going to be a young mom. So it makes sense for Paul to write to young women and then give advice to young moms, given the situation that they're in. But that doesn't help you if you're a single woman looking for guidance and wondering how to live in the Lord's ways. There are other places you can look, and I'll just pull back and give you a big picture right now just so a single woman can have something to take home today. There were actually a number of single people, single women even in the first century, but almost all of them were widows. They would get married young. Sometimes their husband would die young. Sometimes at 15 or 16 years old, a woman would lose her husband and live as a widow for quite some time. Uh, There's a woman like that named Anna in the Bible who lives for a long time as a single woman, even as a single young woman for, for a time. And the New Testament gives instructions to young widows and to older widows and generally to widows. And when you look at it, Not very much of it has to do with the fact that she used to have a husband and doesn't anymore. Almost all of it has to do with the fact that she lives single, and it's just tough sometimes to figure out how to live rightly as a single person. And so I just want to give you the really quick, like, one, two, three, here's the general advice. Just so you have something to take home, we won't spend much time on it, then we'll move on to the young men. If you're a single woman, I think the Bible's advice to you, number one is purity. Live and walk in purity as all of the young people around you refuse to live in purity. Live yourself in purity and show them what that looks like. Number two, there are a lot of instructions to avoid gossip. Avoid gossip, that's number two. And number three, if your singleness affords you a lot of spare time, if you go home and have five hours at night and nobody needs you, be generous with that spare time toward the church. That's generally the Bible's advice to women who live as widows. I think all of it translates to women who have never been married as well. Live in purity, avoid gossip, be generous with your spare time toward the church. If you need to take that home, grab that, take that home. Let's move on to young men. What kind of young men do we wanna raise up at Calvary? Especially in a world that is maybe as immoral as first century crete was certainly comparable what kind of young men do we want to raise up here if you're a young man what is the thing you need to focus on in these years in your late teens 20s and early 30s what do you focus on one thing he only gives you one thing to tell you how much you need to focus on this one thing self-control spend these years developing self-control Now, you might be tempted to think that the young men are getting off easy here, right? Everybody else has a long list of stuff they've got to work on. The guys only have one thing. That's not fair, right? Well, I wonder if every young man in the room right now wishes that it were anything but self-control that were being pressed into them right now. I wish he had said anything other than self-control. Why is it so hard for young men to live in self-control? Well, young men, you have written on your heart from God an initiative, a desire to get up and do stuff, to ask the girl out, to ask the girl to marry you. To mow the lawn and stand there with your hands on the hips and admire the lawn that you just mowed. To build a company, to fix something that needs to be fixed, to do all sorts of things. There's just written on your heart, direct from God, a masculine desire to initiate things. And that is very often good. But because our hearts are dark and they're corrupt, our hearts, Jeremiah says, are desperately wicked, who can understand them? Sometimes when we want to do bad things, that male initiative comes out again, right, and leads us to beat the snot out of that guy that said something that we don't like or check out that cute girl that walked by or lash out in anger at that person who said something that we didn't like or see the phone laying there or the computer screen over here and think, oh man, I know what I could look at on those while nobody's looking, right? That same drive and initiative, when mixed with some of the darkness in our heart, can lead men without restraint to do all sorts of things. That is why the Proverbs say that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. He is defeated. Defenseless because all of those drives, all of that inner masculine drive, turns into truly toxic masculinity. Now, the world around you would say that all of that male drive, you just need to suppress the whole thing, emasculate the whole thing, right? It's all toxic masculinity. Just get rid of it. What the Bible says is something different, that that wild man inside of you just needs to be tamed. Because some of the things you want to do as a young man are good, and some of the things you want to do as a young man are not good. What do you need? You need Self-control. You need the restraint that says, okay, this thing I want to do right now is not good. I'll still be a man of initiative, but I'm not doing that because that's not what the Lord wants me to do. That is why young men here are told to focus on one thing. Paul has got surgical precision when he says this young men develop self control in these early years of your life. How do you do that? Well, if we were to look in detail at the second paragraph of this chapter, which we'll do eventually, we would see that the Lord Jesus himself is taking those that he saves and training us to live godly, upright, and self-controlled lives. He gives to his followers his spirit. And there is fruit that comes out when you have the spirit in you. One of, that fruit, one of those fruits is self-control. How do you grow in self-control? By embracing the gospel, your neediness for a savior, your neediness to be forgiven. And the work of Jesus that has already been done to earn your forgiveness completely. You embrace that. You say, okay, this Jesus, his ways are good. I am going to sit at his feet and learn everything I can from him. I'm going to read his word all the time. I'm going to find myself hearing preaching all the time so I can grow in these things. And you'll find as you hear God's words as a Christian full of the spirit and do them, he will develop in you self-control. Then what you gotta do is take every instruction you get from him and do it. Just lay hold of it all and say, I have, it's not the hearers of the word that are blessed, but it's the doers of the word that are blessed. I'm gonna do everything that he says and watch yourself grow in self-control as you receive his teachings and resolve to walk in them. Young men, that's what you need to dedicate these young years to, growing in self-control. I proclaimed this very thing to some of the people in our vulnerable population last night and afterwards one of the old men came up to me and he said, Dave, I wish someone had told me that when I was 17. And some of you are 17 and you need to hear it. Some of you are 21, 22, 25, 30 and you need to hear young man grow in self-control. What time you get up tomorrow morning matters. With God's help, grow in self-control. What you do when a beautiful woman who is not your wife walks by matters. Grow, young men, in self-control. How you speak matters. With God's help, young men, grow in self-control. And you will find it will bless you all of the years of your life. If that's all you take from this whole sermon, just take that. Lay a hold of it. Dedicate these years to growing in self-control. Can you imagine a church where the young people live like this? Many of you I know are praying for the day when our church is full of young people again, right? When we have an even mix of all the generations in our church. Y'all have been praying that for a long time. I've been praying it for the two years that I have been here. I want you to see from this text that that's not the finish line. When God brings them in here, that's the starting line here we have the finish line when we are full of young moms who lavish their husbands and children with love when we are full of young men who have learned self-control at the feet of jesus when we are full of young single women who give their time generously to the church and avoid gossip and live in purity that's what we're shooting for That's the kind of church that shines like a city on a hill because it has got righteous people living Jesus' ways in it. And that is what I am praying for. I invite you to pray that with me as well. Let's pray together.